tennis.com podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi, everyone. Tennis.com podcast. I am Ed McGrogan here talking with Steve Tigner on Monday uh, after the Davis Cup semifinals. I'm going to look back at that. Uh, look ahead a little bit as well. Steve just um, put up his piece on the semifinals, won by the Czech Republic over Argentina on the road and Spain over the U.S. at home. Um, I want to actually just start with that Spain-U.S. for a second and really just look at the now-departed American team kind of going forward because you know, this was a year um, not you know from the beginning Jim Courier was riding Isner um, – and you know he was, I think, fantastic overall for this team to get to this point. It's definitely a year, perhaps, of transition for the U.S. with Roddick retiring. Fish, we really have kind of, you know, maybe that high that he reached of the past year or so has really kind of waned off going forward. And you have kind of the comeback, um, Sam Quarry back in the top thirty. You still have guys like Ryan Harrison, um, Brian Brothers, of course, still doing their thing, still winning slams, still setting records. Yeah, what do you think for next year for Jim Courier? Where does he see this U.S. team, uh, you know, going into his first tie in February, March? Well, I guess this this is a transition year um, because this was the first year where Andy Roddick wasn't the anchor of the team. He was there last year. They lost to Spain the last two years, so they've obviously lost to the best team. Um, they've done well otherwise, but now he'll have to to work really without an anchor, without the guy, you know, the go-to guy to to clinch the the tie. I don't think you can say Isner is is there yet. He had a great year, but he's he still struggles in three, uh, three out of five set matches as he showed this weekend. So, and then you've got you know Isner is something of a question mark. He, I think he'll always be on the team, and he'll be he'll be a solid member of the team. Fish seems to be a bigger question mark um, just with his health going forward. He's also over thirty years old. Sam Query. Um, Hey, what are your thoughts on Sam? I'm kind of curious about this. Um, Sam, it's hard to say with Sam. He he seems to be becoming a guy who can beat. You know, he's he's he sort of bottomed out, then he was injured. Now he's back in you know top 25 um, without too much trouble. He seems to be a guy who who has his level right around number 20. He can mm-hmm. beat anybody below that, but he can't beat the guys above them. And he doesn't have the kind of he doesn't have the kind of game. It seems that that can pull off a big upset like that. So I think he's a, he's a solid number two player mm-hmm. at this point. Um, Ryan Harrison is still maybe not ready for, maybe not ready next year. I could see Isner, this being the team next year, Isner Query and the Bryans. And we'll see what fish, we'll see where he is, um, whether he even really wants to, to commit to that much tennis and play Davis Cup, you know, f- commit to four ties. Yeah, it. Um, yeah, I think Isner is, is, in some ways, good for this format, just because of the, kind of the problems he poses to really anybody, of course. And that you know, winner take all. And this isn't like a seven match tournament, of course, that we're playing here. But you know, within one tie, um, we're, I was watching the tie. Um, Justin Gimelstein made a good point in that you know this is this is nothing you can bank on, but if you think about how much the U.S. did play on the road this year against these really good teams, even though they did well, they should actually end up with a lot of advantageous home ties in the coming years, especially against you know when they run into Spain again or something like that. So I think overall it's um, you know uh, tough to complain about about that you know that level um you know if you break down match by match like we were talking about with Isner and how he played Ferrer and how he just kind of really went away after 
winning the first set, um, you know, maybe that's a little more of a pause for, for U.S. fans there. But yeah, I think one other major thing you can't forget is the Bryan brothers are they're planning to play all the way till 2016. You can see, easily see them doing it. They could probably go till 2020, and they just they really rarely lose. So mm-hmm. that will always you know the, the U.S. Has as close to a you know a lock for one point in every tie as anybody has. Right. The two teams that move on, as I said, Czechs and Spain, and this time Spain will not be at home. They've been at home for as as long as I can remember playing ties here. Um, I was kind of looking forward to that Spain Argentina final. I went to the you know last year's, saw that in Spain, and and it did kind of seem like it was setting up for that sort of rematch. Get no, get possibly Nelbandian back in time for that. Del Potro really kind of a nice resurgence through this year, but um, that didn't work out at all. And that, I think their fate was pretty much sealed once Del Potro pulled out after that. Um, after the doubles, he didn't play doubles, but it was announced that he would not play Sunday. And Berloque really, you know, didn't stand a chance. I think against a player like Burdich there. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So the Czechs get them at home and. As you said, this is probably on you know ice or something that's faster than than hard yeah. courts, whatever that is. So yeah, the Czechs have had they've had a great year. Burdich has had Burdich is eight zero this year, and he's just coming off. This is his second straight three win tie. At the same time, he's also had some good fortune. Djokovic didn't play for the Serbs mm-hmm. when they played him in the quarters, and Burdich got to play Berlak instead of Del Potro yesterday, which is obviously a huge difference. But still, this you get the feel, you know. The fact that it's not in Spain gives you know gives at least some kind of chance for the Czechs, and you figure they'll they'll put the fastest surface they can find. And Burdich, um, especially if Rafa's not playing, he he could easily be favored in in any match. F- any match. He's he and he's fifteen and one in doubles in his Davis Cup career, and uh, so he you know could set up for a big moment for for Burdich. I was going to say, Stepanek is a good doubles player as well on this. Um, like I said, I, I, I'm almost. It feels like there's no way you're going to see Rafa the rest of this year. It doesn't, it, particularly that the match you would think in all likelihood is not going to be on clay. I think if he came back on any service, it would mm-hmm. be for that moonlighting for the Cup final in Spain if they happen to host it. But that's you know that's not the case here. Um, but you know, I guess. In regards to Spain, what we always say about them is they do have that depth, and you know, no matter what surface checks choose, um, you know, Almagro might be a very strong player on that, you know, on that fast service. But in, of course, you're not going to leave off a guy like Ferrer, who's been so. You know, that's probably. It, it seems like that those two guys would be the strong singles choices for them going forward. Doubles, maybe you, you coax. Lopez and Verdasco out of retirement or something, yeah. but th- you know that's that is a pretty good final. I, I have to say. Yeah, I think the doubles will be a big deal in there. Burdich and Stepanek will probably be the favorite. They'd be favored over Lopez and Granollier at this point. Um, it seems like Verdasco and Lopez kind of ran their course last year. They were awful by the end of they were horrific by the end of the last final. year, so they didn't even try to put them together this time. Um, but they're gonna. I think the Spanish are gonna need some better doubles for the final. Yeah. Um, in the uh, the sub the sub tier of play last weekend, you had the countries needing to win to remain in the world group, um, and you had Switzerland, which is usually falls into that group. And this is usually when you see Roger play right after the U.S. Open. 
and he's made a habit of of playing this tie and then really not following up with the tie that he won to get them for. And he he had some, you know, there was an interview after that we had on the ticker there transcribed Federer really kind of saying what a lot of people I think have, have thought about his idea, his perception of Davis Cup in that essentially it's just not, you know, uh, it's not a high priority for him in terms of his tennis accomplishments. And people do like to point to that whole, it's not really a whole, it's just an, it's just a thing he, basically the only thing he hasn't won. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't look like, you know, Roger Federer's going to be hanging on till he's 40 years old to win this Davis Cup with Switzerland. And, no. and, I, and I wonder, I guess, if his comments are, you know, you know, that's about him in general, but it's, of course, maybe it's a, maybe it's a viewpoint that's really shared by a lot of players, but it's never really, you know, spoken as I well. used to criticize him for it. Um, now it seems pointless. He just has made it clear that it's just not a big, not a big thing for him. He also likes to say that he represents his country wherever he plays, and that's the way he thinks of it. Um, it's wow. a good way to look Which at it. Which is a way to look at it. Maybe his, who knows what his teammates think of that, but it is, it is a way to look at it. Um, he also, he also um, doesn't, isn't happy to have to play one tie per year to qualify for the Olympics, and I think he's right. I, don't think there's, I really don't think there's a reason why the ITF uh, feels the need to force players to play things they don't want to play just to be to allow them to play something they do want to play. The Olympics, Serena and and Federer, are in particular, both against that rule, and I, I think they're right. I think I think um, you know nobody has served Federer plays something he obviously doesn't want to play in Serena as well. So I think yeah, maybe this is the, the time when we can just put Federer and Davis Cup, you know, participation or non-participation behind us last year he did try to play in the world group and it obviously didn't work out mm-hmm. right exactly against uh, isner of course so, so yeah it, it, you know when you i guess when you mention that requirement to play for the olympics Federer, you know talks about still wanting to play that in 2016 so you could potentially just see kind of come in for one tie sort of as per usual there and i guess i guess when you, now that you mentioned really those itf requirements and you think about what the ATP is doing and what, you know, kind of the requirements they have on their players. And then you think about how this is all tying back to what may, what sort of the whispers about player descent and prize money and sort of the demands on them. And I guess this is potentially, uh, that could potentially be the, the talk of this later year is where this all goes. Cause I think you and I both heard a lot at the open about, how this could potentially pick up steam, the sort of labor issue going on with tennis there. And I don't know if you've heard anything, you know. Yeah, it seems like the Australian Open is going to be, they're pushing, you know, they've had some success. The top players have pushed for more money, more revenue in general for the players from the Grand Slams because they currently get between 11 and 17% of the revenue there. That's less than they get from their own tour events. And the Grand Slams have obviously been hugely successful in the last 10 years and made more and more money. Um, you know, using the players obviously, and, the, and their stardom has, has has contributed to that. They want 25% of the revenues. Uh, that's what they're talking about in Australia. The Australian Open tournament director says they're going to offer more money. Whether they can meet the demands of the players is, you know, remains to be seen. The Grand Slam's defense is that their money doesn't just go for profit. It's money that goes back to to um, trying to develop players in those. You know, they're in those countries. That's what the federations run the events. Um, so that's their defense of why they don't um, pay the players more. Uh, but that's you know that's a 
it's an old distinction that I think I think probably I doesn't like, sit too well with players like you, I think you said who aren't. Why, then, would, yeah. why would a player from you know Croatia care about then how? Right. The other thing, yeah, the Swiss or the Spanish or the French don't or the French do, but Swiss and the Spanish they don't have that um, that benefit. They, you know, they play the U.S. Open. You know, they don't obviously don't have a real stake in helping U.S. tennis players. So it's another you know real difficult situation. But it it feels like like the players are committed and it's going in a good direction. I, I could feel like if they could get it to 20 to 25%, that's something incrementally that that's a good, that's a good step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, I have a feeling we're going to be hearing more about that in a little, a little bit. Um, we'll be back next week. Podcast, Steve and I uh, probably look ahead to some of next week's events. Uh, I think uh, the calendar improves significantly on the WTA side specifically that, that I think that already begins to head to Asia for some um, more mandatory tournaments there. So we'll be, Talking about that next week in the podcast. Um, look for one also Wednesday with myself and Pete Bodo. Thanks for listening again. Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 